Genesis chapter 4. I had been struggling all week. You know, usually if I'm struggling with what to speak, I know it's because, you know, I'm just not hearing well and, and God has something. And I, I think I needed to hear Sister Martha last night to uh, kind of zero in on what the Lord was wanting to say. Sister Martha talked to us about loving your family. She really talked about that last night. And so I want to talk a little bit about who's your family today. Who's your family? Genesis chapter 4, verse 2. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering... He did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. You know, now, first of all, I want you to notice till this point, God has not given any kind of instructions about offerings. God has not said, this is what I want you to give to me. So it's not that God is really anti-vegetable. You know, I noticed last night a lot of plates filled with brisket, and I saw a lot of lonely broccoli left on the buffet line. So, so I imagine most of you are like God. You would not have looked very much with favor on Abel and his offering. You would have said, no, bring us the brisket. <laughs> but I want you to notice this, that that what is acceptable to God is the attitude of the giver, not the gift itself. So it's not that God is looking and saying, you know, Abel, you didn't bring the right kind of stuff to me, and so I'm not going to accept it. There's something in the attitude of Cain and Abel that separated those gifts from each other. There's something in it that God could see in the attitude of Abel. There was a willingness. There was a desire. There was a hunger in this offering. Whereas in Cain, there was something different that made it not acceptable to the Lord. I want to tell you, no matter how large, no matter how small, no matter what the offering, it is always acceptable in the sight of God when it's given from a willing heart. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. I don't think we talk enough about that verse. Boy, that's a lot of theology packed in there. Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now, we need to have a theological point since we're all ministers here. Let's have a theological point. God doesn't ask questions because he needs information. True? <laughs> I mean, God is not somehow confused about what happened to Abel. Where'd he go? I lost him. You see, every question of God is an opportunity. It's an opportunity. What's the opportunity? 
Cain, where is your brother? The opportunity is, forgive me. I, I got upset. I, I lost my mind. I made a mistake. God, forgive me. Every time God asks a question, he is offering to us an opportunity. He doesn't need our information. So here's the opportunity. But Cain does what we often do. We deflect. We defer. And what is the deflection of Cain? I don't know, he replied. You guys remember the response? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Why are you asking me about Cain? My name's Abel. I mean, I'm not responsible for him. I've got my own family. I've got my own life. Why are you asking me about him? I mean, why are we here today talking about Minnesota? Why are we worried about the world? We're Americans. we got our own issues. Am I Minnesota's keeper? Am I really responsible for the world? You see, this is the root of sin. A sense of disconnectedness with one another. I'm not responsible. I'm only responsible for me. I just got to take care of me. But it wasn't like this in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after all of this creation, God created something special. He, he did something different. He breathed into one of his creations. And, and that creation became an image bearer. That's us. He breathed into the man. He, out of the man, created the woman. That these are my image bearers. And there is a reason that God created them different. God created them different to have a relationship with them. So that they could have a relationship with him. You can almost see the purpose of creation. It tells us in Genesis 3 that every evening God would come down in the cool of the night and he would walk with Adam and Eve. I mean, that's, that's why we're here. That's why we were created. We were created to have fellowship with one another and with God. That's why we're here. That's why we exist, to have a relationship with God. But relationship requires a dangerous thing. You know the most dangerous thing in all the world? Freedom. Choice. That's dangerous. But, but we're a little bit different than animals. You see, in the history of humanity, Darwin and all the scientists who've ever existed, nobody has ever located a vegan tiger. Nobody's ever found a tiger that had an ethical conundrum looking in the eyes of this baby deer and saying, you know, should I kill it or not? I think I'm just going to eat an apple today. 
Nobody has found a great white shark who decided to eat kelp instead of otters. Because they have a nature and they have to do what their nature tells them to do. They have to eat what nature tells them to eat. They have to go where nature tells them to go. They have to live where nature tells them to live. They have an instinct that they live by. They don't have choice. And so because of that, God could not be in relationship with them. Because relationship requires choice. It requires a decision. You can force two people to live in the same house, but you can't force two people to love each other. You see, love is a choice of people deciding, I I love you, I want to be with you, but if I have to be with you, if I'm coerced to be with you, it's no longer love, it's no longer a real relationship. So God created us with this dangerous thing, the freedom of choice, you can be with me. I created you to be with me, but I'm going to give you a choice, you don't have to be, I will never coerce you to be with me. I will never force you to be with me. So these two trees in the garden represent for us the the choice, the freedom. Everything is yours. These two trees, just don't eat from those two trees. But then the lie of the enemy comes. And what was the first lie? Why are you following his rules? You can be a rule to yourself. You can be a God to yourself. God's trying to keep you from something good. There are better things out there. Why stay in relationship with him and follow his rules when you can break free and live life on your own terms? You make the rules. You be the God. You be the Lord of your own life. That was the first lie. Now I want you to notice this. We we often think of the, the initial effect of sin as death. But the initial effect of sin was not death. The initial effect of sin was separation. And that separation, think think this through, this is not an evil, angry God saying, you didn't follow my rules and so you're out. This is a loving God who never coerces, saying, if you don't want to be with me, I will never force you to be with me. If you don't want to be in my house, if you don't want to be in my presence, if you, if you really want to live life on your own terms, I'm not going to force you to stay in the house. And so they're out of the garden. But notice this, where's God? They've left God, they've rejected God, but where is God? God is right there talking to Cain, meeting with Abel, accepting the sacrifices even though they're by polluted people. God is still right there with them. God is still trying to bring them back to himself, even even in the midst of their rebellion, even in the midst of murder. Here is God right there with them, trying to offer them an opportunity. Come back. Come back. Come back. There's God. And this is the history of the world. If you are not in right relationship with God, you can't be in right relationship with one another. I mean, this is the the story of the Old Testament. Brother kills brother. Family fights family. City fights city. 
People fight people. Nation fights nation. Why? Because of a people who are in rebellion against God, they cannot be in right relationship with one another. That is the story of the Old Testament, but then along comes Jesus. That's where you say amen. (laughs) But along comes Jesus. And when Jesus comes, here, here comes Jesus into the picture that he is here to restore our relationship, to bring us back into the presence of God, to open the door so, so the angels being pulled away from the garden gates and come on back into the garden. And, and here's the thing. I want you to see this. When Jesus dies, the first thing that happens after he breathes his last breath, it said Jesus dies and there was a trembling. Literally, the whole earth began to shake. And it says that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. So what's happening there? Even though people were in rebellion, God says, I want to be with you. Build a tabernacle. I'm going to go with you everywhere they go. When they get to the land, he says, build me a temple. And he's right there with them in the temple. But because of their sinfulness, there's still this veil. There's still an angel at the gate. They can't come in. And only once a year, the high priest can go on behalf of the people. But when Jesus died, when he died, the veil is torn. And he said, there's access again. There's access again. Come back into the garden. Come and walk with me again. Let your relationship with me be restored again. That he opened the door for every relationship of our life to be restored because our relationship with him has been restored. I saw this happen in my life. When I was 20 years old, I was an alcoholic. I had been an alcoholic for over five years. I had mentioned my mom left when I was a teenager. And then my father left soon after my mom did, and I was alone. I was angry. I was bitter. I turned to violence. I turned to alcohol and drugs. My life was falling apart. And then when I was 20 years old, I had an encounter with Jesus. You know, I I hear people talk about the day they found Jesus. And that makes it sound like he was an old man lost in the woods somewhere. (laughs) And, uh, And I had to search really hard to find him. I want to tell you, you didn't find Jesus, but when you were lost, Jesus found you. We are not here today because we were searching for a God who was hiding from us. We were here today because even when we were hiding from him, he was searching for us. He was looking for us. He was longing for us to bring us into his presence. He is the good shepherd that walks until he finds the lost sheep. He is the the woman who searches until she finds the lost coin. He is the father who looks longingly into the distance until the son comes home. He is longing and looking to bring us back to himself. That's the God that we serve. And he found me when I was 20 years old. Three months after I got saved, I was asked to preach my first sermon. I was a plumber, and uh, my dad was a plumber, and I didn't know anything about preaching. I'd never spoken in front of people in my life. And uh, this Baptist preacher meets me one day, and he says, uh, I was just praying, and we're having youth night Sunday night, and you're the man. You're supposed to preach. I said, I, I think you got the wrong man. If you've got a stopped-up toilet, I can help you, but I don't, I don't know anything about preaching. He said, no, I prayed. He said, I don't have any youth in my church, and Sunday night's youth night, and the Lord spoke to me, you're supposed to preach. The Lord speaks to Southern Baptists, too. Some of you don't know that. (laughs) 
And so, uh, so I showed up on Sunday night, and uh, you know, I, I thought in my mind, this is if if God's called me to preach, this is a good way to start because I had driven by the church hundreds of times, you know, growing up. It's just out in the country, and never seen more than four or five cars in the parking lot. And I get there, and I mean, it's packed. Just packed. There's cars. There's nowhere to park. And, and uh, I had to go park way in the back in the field. And, and I get out of my car, and I'm like, man, what's happening here? And the pastor came up to me. He said, I'm so glad you came. He said, I went all over town this week, knocked on every door in town, and told everybody you got saved, and told everybody they need to come to church. And so uh, we didn't have a movie theater or a bowling alley. There was nothing to do in my town on a Sunday night, so everybody came. <laughs> so... <laughs> And I was pretty infamous, so uh, there was about 20 of my old buddies that, you know, I was in the bar with a couple months earlier, and five or six old girlfriends are there, and saw a few of them. It's like, oh, I forgot I ain't even broke up with her. Hey, I'll give you a call. You know, like, this is, this is like high pressure. <laughs> and then uh, I get to the front row, and I looked, and on the second row, my mom was on the second row. I had not seen my mom since the day she walked out of the house. I had a... Uh, deep-seated anger, probably hatred. And I saw her, and it never crossed my mind when I got saved that uh, something you need to make right. My grandmother and grandfather were there. My brother and sister, he went and got all my family. He was able to drag everybody except my dad and said, uh, hey, least you can do for him is come hear him. And I preached my first sermon. I'd only been saved three months, and the only thing I remember is when I ended... I said, the same God who changed my life, he's here. He'll change your life. And my mom jumped out of her seat and ran down and gave her heart to the Lord. My mom is a Sunday school teacher in a church today. My brother and sister-in-law came down and gave their hearts to the Lord. My brother is a deacon in a church. My uh, nephew is a missionary. I baptized my grandmother the week before she died. My grandfather lived out his days serving the Lord. My father ended up coming to the Lord and pastored a church the last three years of his life. Because when your relationship as God is made right, it opens the door for every relationship to be made right. It restores all things. The door is open. The door is open. And here's what I want you to see. The early church. Now, we got these people. They, they've walked through the veil now. They've been made right with God. Their lives have turned upside down. Look with me in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We know that they prayed. They had fellowship. They studied the Word of God together. There were miracles. They worshiped. But, but I want you to notice the primary emphasis of the early church. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44. This is the, the only part that is expounded on. Acts 2, 44. All the believers were together and had tithing in common. <laughs> Don't you wish? All the believers together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone, insiders, outsiders, Jews, Gentiles, family, friends, to anyone who had need. Acts chapter 4, 
we see the church coming back together again. Verse 32. All the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work among them. Listen to this. The grace of God was so powerfully at work among them. It, it wasn't that the dead were raised. It wasn't that the grace of God was so powerfully working that blind eyes were open. It wasn't that miracles were happening. But the grace of God was so powerfully at work among them all that there were no needy persons among them. Can you imagine that? So, so what's happening here in the early church? What's happening? You see, what's happening is the day they came to Jesus, they started to realize our relationships has changed. That, that you are no longer just my neighbor. You're my brother. You're my sister. You are my family. When I first got saved, I went to church and uh, I got up from the altar and they said, that's so good, you're saved now. Let us introduce you to our pastor. This is Brother Carol. And I said, I don't have a brother named Carol. I didn't grow up in all this. <laughs> I said, I don't, I don't have a brother named Carol. They said, oh, no, no, we just uh, call, uh, we call each other that. That's what we call each other, brother and sisters. And okay, so we call. So it, it becomes kind of a, a title of endearment. In the church. That, that's especially in the South. I don't know if you guys do that. You guys don't hold hands here and you don't call each other brother and sister. So, I told Pastor Clarence I was going to have him and uh, Kirby hold hands at the end so we'd see a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> but we just kind of use it as just kind of familial terms. But, but in the early church... They started using these terms to denote a new relationship. Whatever I owe my brother, I now owe you because we're in Christ. Whatever I owe my sister, I now owe you because we're, we're in Christ. We are the family of God. We are the people of God. We are in relationship together. We're in this together now. There is no mine and yours anymore. We're family. We're in this thing together. When I uh, travel, I, I love Chi Alpha. Give a shout out to Steph and all the incredible Chi Alpha folks. Love Chi Alpha. And whenever I go to colleges and speak, you know, I'll notice, I, I'll go into uh, like a college student's room, and if you open the refrigerator, the, uh, the stuff always has people's name on it. Right? Because if your mama sends you brownies and you don't put your name on it, it's just gone. And even if you do put your name on it, it's probably gone, so you've got to hide it. So you look in there, and there's milk, and I'll see people's names on the milk, and I say, hey, which one of these can I use? Because they all belong to somebody. Because when you're in college, if, if you want it, you've got to put your name on it. But in my house, nobody is allowed to put their name on anything. So if my son says to me, that's my milk, 
I would say, no, it's not your milk. That's our milk because it's in our house. One of the greatest burdens of my life is I have three sons who all have the same shoe size. So the shoes I wear every day depends on what time of day I get to the door. And whatever they like that day. So I go to the door and I just have to look. And usually I get, you know, an old pair of tennis shoes is about all that's left. Or mismatched flip-flops is about all that's left. Because it's our house. And in our house, everything's common. And in our house, everything is shared. In our house, if, if there's enough food for three and there's five of it, we just all eat a little bit less because in our house we share. In the early church, when they came together, they started having this, this new concept of what it means to be family of what it means to be the people of God. That they started looking around and say, yes, I, I'm responsible for my wife, and yes, I'm responsible for my sons, but you are also my family, and I'm also responsible for you. I am my brother's keeper. I'm responsible. You want to know about Abel? Ask me, because I'm responsible. You want to know about Cain? Ask me. I'm responsible. We are the people of God. We are the family of God. We are responsible for one another. There's an Indian theologian. His name is Dr. Ivan Satyavatra, one of my very close friends. He made this statement. He said, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Boy, that's, that's just... Every, every time I think that through, it's just so deep, so rich. The blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus that has made us one, unites us in a deeper way than even the, the brother-sister relationship we could have with family can unite us because that is a relationship of the we share a womb, but in Christ we have a common blood that unites us together that we are responsible for one another. Most of the problems in our world just come down to this simple idea, how far does your family extend? That's the problem in the world. How far does your family extend? So for some of us, as long as me and my wife and my three sons are good, world's good. You know, that's the people that uh, they can go buy these uh, buckets full of food, <laughs> And keep it in the house for the apocalypse because as long as we're fed, if people are starving out there, it doesn't matter because I've just got to take care of me and mine. Right? So it doesn't really matter what happens out there. i just got to take care of me and mine. How far does your family go? And there are some people that would say, no, no, my, my city, I, I've got to take care of my city. They feel a sense, you as pastors, some of you feel a, a sense of, of responsibility, familial responsibility for my city or my state or, or my nation. But all of us get to a point that there's somewhere in the equation that there is the other that I'm not responsible for. How far does your family go? And in Christ, I just want to propose to you today that in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. 
There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. There is no American or Indian. There is no Russian or Ukrainian. That in Christ, the blood of Christ makes us one people, one family, and we are responsible for one another. In Christ, we are responsible. So in Christ, i got to pray for the Ukrainian as the same way I pray for the Russian. This is my family, and my family's fighting, but God, you love them the same. And I've got to pray, not let one beat the other. I've got to pray, God, let your kingdom come, your kingdom of peace, your kingdom of righteousness, your kingdom of hope. Let your kingdom come and be established. Then in the kingdom, we can't pick sides because we're on all sides. And all sides are in us. We can't pick sides anymore. We have to say when one hurts, we all hurt because we are part of the family. And what I found in the family, man, I I got so much family out there that doesn't even know yet. They don't even know that they have a loving father. They, They were orphaned at birth. They don't know that they have a heavenly father. They don't know that they have a big brother who gave his life for them. They have been orphaned and abandoned, and we are the people of God sent into the world to let them know you don't even know it yet, but you and I are brothers. You and I are sisters. We were created by the same God. The same blood pulses through our veins. We are one, and Christ has called you. Come back to the family come and be a part of God's kingdom and I want to propose to you more than anything else this was the revolutionary idea of the early church in that world miracles were done sometimes it wasn't unusual people heard about miracles there were prophets who came through and did things There were all kinds of things. The thing that made the church so radically different was that in a divided world, in a world set apart by power and violence, the church was a people that stood out and said, everyone is welcome. Everyone can come in. Come as you are and allow Jesus to change your life. They were a radical community that offered food to to those who were hungry. They, They offered help to those who were broken. They were a people that offered family to all. That was the radical idea of the church. You know, we're told back when uh, the plagues started going through Rome, back in the second and third centuries, there were plagues going through Rome, that the emperor at that time, Justin the Apostate, he started sending out letters to the pagan priest. And he was saying, hey, guys, you, you got to up your game. He said, because these Christians are going out and they're serving these people who are sick. And you won't even allow them in the temples anymore. You don't allow people with the plague to come and you're shutting yourself up. And these Christians, not priests, just normal everyday Christians are going out and they're serving them and they're feeding them. And people are turning. And if we don't be careful, they're going to take over. And how are they going to take over? Not with power, not with politics, not with a vote, not with a change of government, but with the compassion of Christ. Living out the gospel every day. Showing the love of Christ. Showing the compassion, mercy, and care of Christ to a broken and hurting world. And he was right. It happened. But now we're in power. And when you're in power, you don't have to show love. When you're in power, you can coerce. But let me tell you, coercive love will never change the world.
The power of Christ was self-sacrificing love. It was a love that embraced the world as family. And that is the love that God has called us to today. Around the world today, there are 7,000 unreached people groups. Do you know why there's 7,000 unreached people groups? Because we're not our brother's keeper. I mean, we got enough problems of our own. Man, have you seen what's happening in our schools? Have you seen the strife in our cities? We got enough problems of our own. Am I? Do you know why they exist? Am I my brother's keeper? We've got, Steph, how many universities in Minnesota don't have a Chi Alpha group? Way too many. Why? Man, do you know what's going on in my church? You know all the stuff I got going on in my family? I can't think about all that. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible? You know, if one of my sons needed a kidney, if one of my sons were, were in danger, I would, without thought, sacrifice myself for my sons because that's how deeply I love them. And I have prayed now for almost two years. I made a covenant with the Lord. Lord, I will not pray for my sons unless I also pray for sons who don't have a father who know you. I will be my brother's keeper. And I pray for my sons a lot because sometimes they're just stupid. (laughs) They do dumb things. And so multiple times every day I'm praying for my sons. God, help my sons just to walk on your path, to walk with you. And every time I do it, and I say, God, and I pray for the sons and daughters who don't have a dad to lift them up today. I will be their father today. I will pray for them as my own sons, my own daughters today. God, help me to hurt for them as much as I hurt for my own. Help me, Lord. You know, when my sons are struggling, nobody has to remind me to pray for my sons. I don't need a text message to remind me. When my sons are struggling, it's hard to go to bed at night. I, I, I go to bed sometimes just, just praying for them. Sometimes in the middle of the night, I'll wake up with, their, with them on my heart, and I'm just praying, God, get a hold of their hearts. I wake up in the morning. It's the first thing, and throughout the day, it's there. Why? Because I love them. I, I feel responsible for them. I attach to them. Why are there so many unreached in the world? It's because they don't have a family. They don't have an intercessor. They don't have a people who are, who are thinking every day through the idea of what's it going to take to get a hold of their hearts. And what we need today is a people who love their families the way Sister Martha was telling you about. But what we need is a people who expand their idea of who my family is. 
That that same compassion and grace and mercy that I'm extending to my wife and my sons every day, that God give me the ability, give me the grace to extend it to the world around me. To care for the world as much as I care for those who are closest to me. You know, this started for me, and I'm close with this. This started for me about, uh, it's probably about 15 years back now. It's been a while. And I had a neighbor who was uh, sick. And he used to be out every day working in the yard. And then I started noticing, like, he came out less and less until he just wasn't coming out. And, and I knew he was getting sick. And I've always tried to, I, I really believe one of the problems we have with how we do compassion is sometimes we do compassion in a way that robs people of dignity. You can do compassion in a way that robs people of dignity. You know, make them feel like a beggar. Make them feel like less than. So I didn't want to go to him and say, hey, you're poor. I'm rich. Let me, let me take you to the doctor. So, so one day my son was a little sick. So I go to his house. And I said, but I need your help. I said, you're known in the community. You know people. I need to take my son to the doctor. Would you please go help me take my son to the doctor? And he just brightened up. He said, yes, he only had two shirts. He took off his dirty shirt and put his other dirty shirt on and got in the truck and we, we ride to the hospital. And, man, he got there and he was like, he was like, you know, a peacock with his feathers up. He walked in and he's like telling the doctors, my neighbor's here and uh, you need to check out his son and he's sick and he's running through and running doctors around and he's an old man and run the place. And so you just, you just tell people what to do. And he's telling everybody what to do, walking in the doctor station and pulling people out and gets my son checked out. When we're all finished, I said to him, I said, Mr. Old Man, I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you helping me today. This has been such a blessing. Uh, can, I, can I return a favor to you? I'd like to bless you. As long as we're here, uh, why, don't, why don't you get checked up too? He said, okay, I'll get checked up. So they do a checkup and uh, did some blood work, did some tests and said, come back in a few days. And we come back in a few days and we sit down in front of the doctor and the doctor lays the report in front of me, looks at him and just shakes his head. Said, he's not going to make it. Take him home, let him die. And it was just like jarring I said, what? What do you mean take him home and let him die? He said, well, the reports show his kidneys are failing. He said, look at this man. He has no money. He has no car. He has no family. There's no reason for me to give him false hope. There, that we have no ability to treat him in this hospital. Closest hospital away is 12 hours away, and uh, there's no hope for him. He can't afford it. He can't get there. Better for him to go home and die in peace. So, uh, so I told the doctor, I said, well, how much money are we talking about? And he gave me a figure. He threw it out. And he said, well, starting, he threw me a figure out like 20,000 U.S. dollars. And I was like, man, I don't have 20,000 U.S. dollars. So we get in the truck and we go home. And we get to the home and we lived on this little dirt lane. He lived on one side of the road and I lived on the other. And I said to him, I said, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm going to begin to pray for you every day that Jesus is going to heal you. I believe Jesus is a healer, and I'm going to pray Jesus is going to heal you. He said, thank you, and I prayed for him. That night I got ready to go to bed, and I got down on my knees beside the bed, and I started to pray. Jesus, I believe if, if you'd heal my neighbor, man, it, it would just change things. Jesus, please heal my neighbor. And in that moment, the Spirit of God spoke to me, still small voice.
said, what would you do if he was your father? Mm. So I started to think. Stop praying and I started thinking. What would I do if he's my father? And I thought, well, if there was slightest chance of life, I'd sell my car. I'd mortgage my house. I'd borrow money. I'd run up my credit cards. I'd do anything if a family member had a chance. I guess I'd go in debt. And I felt like the Spirit speak to me and said, treat him like he's your father. So uh, the next day, I wake up and I go to his house and I said, I didn't treat you right yesterday. I said, I, I treated you like a stranger. I didn't treat you like family. I said, since I've come in this neighborhood, you've been like family. You've helped me and, and I'm going to treat you like family. I said, if, if my father was in this condition, I'd do whatever I had to do to help him. So I said, I tell you what, get ready. I said, in a couple days, and we're going to start your treatment. So a couple days later, we get in the truck. We drive 12 hours. He starts on dialysis and starts on his treatment. And the doctor says every month, once a month, for the rest of his life, he's going to have to be here. So that started the process. Once a month, we'd get in the truck. We'd drive down there. We'd spend a couple days in the hospital doing all of his stuff. And then we'd drive back and maxed out credit cards and <laughs> borrowed money here and there. And But... Uh, uh, but he's still alive today. He's still alive. And uh, about three years after that started, the Lord called us. So I go to his house and I tell him, I said, Mr. Oden, I took a friend of mine with me from there, a local person. And I said, you know, this friend of mine, he knows Jesus too. And, and he's going to help you. I, he's got my credit card. He's going to keep paying the bills. And we're going to make sure you're taken care of. And so... Uh, so just wanted you to know, he's here for you. Every month, he'll, he'll take you down every month. You're going to be taken care of. You're not abandoned. The next day, I'm getting ready to get in my truck. And a little boy from the neighborhood came and grabs me, pulls on my shirt. And he said, see you one more time. And I said, well, I'm going to the airport. I don't have time. And so, so I run over to his house real quick. And I thought, you know, did I forget anything and all? And he's sitting by now. He, he can't walk anymore. And he just pushes himself up in his bed. He said, I want you to know before you go. He said, you're my son. You're my son. He said, we're family. And he said, in his family, your God needs to be my God. Would you pray with me? I want to serve Jesus. His wife stepped around the corner said, you're my son too. I want to serve Jesus. And we prayed with them that day and gave their hearts to the Lord. And now there's a church that meets in their house wasn't a miracle that changed the world. It was just treating somebody like family. It changed the world. And that's a lot harder than a miracle. So your first response might be, that sounds good, but you just can't do that for everybody. My retort to you is, start with somebody. Start with somebody. Start asking the Lord for the discernment to walk and say, who are some people that need a family today? Who's somebody that needs a brother, a sister, a father, a mother today? Who, who's somebody in my life, anyone that I can give everything to? Who's out there? And I want to tell you, 
When you start to think of the world as your responsibility, man, things start to happen. Just started with caring. I can't be a part of the solution. I am responsible. I want to tell you today, you are your brother's keeper. You are Minnesota's keeper. You are the keeper of its cities. You are the keeper of its towns. You're the keeper of the Twin Cities. You are the keeper of America. You are the keepers of the world. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Now I am sending you with all authority to go into this world and keep it in my name. Would you just stand with me?